Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you could join us. As winter approaches and territorial changes along the front lines in Ukraine remain minimal, the realization is setting in that a long war likely lies ahead and that the challenges facing Ukraine are perhaps greater than the Allies anticipated. To continue to defend itself against Russia's aggression in the months and years to come, Kyiv will need the full support of its Western backers. Yet continued aid from the United States, Ukraine's largest provider of weapons by far, is looking increasingly doubtful. The U.S. Congress has been unable to pass new legislation for Ukraine assistance since September due to opposition from portions of the Republican Party, and there are no signs that this opposition is softening. With every day that passes, the window of opportunity for a course correction is shrinking, and Ukraine will soon feel the consequences if nothing changes. To unpack the political reality around Ukraine's support in the United States and what lies ahead, we're very pleased to welcome Evo Dadler to the podcast today. Evo, welcome. Hey, great to be here. Uh, Evo is president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and from 2009 to 2013, he served as the United States ambassador to NATO. Uh, Evo, before we hit record, we were all uh, kind of reflecting that things feel gloomy, um, that the dialogue, the discourse in Washington, uh, but increasingly in European capitals has shifted. Uh, it's been a notable shift, I think, in the last couple of weeks. Um, can you give us your sense of where the narratives are uh, on the U.S. side uh, in terms of where things lie with the war and the potential for sustained U.S. support to Ukraine? Uh, yeah, I think gloomy is probably the right word uh, to uh, to describe what's happening. And, you know, by the way, I think there's gloominess in, in, in Kyiv as well uh, about what's happening. Um, you know, just go back of just a few months uh, uh, to late spring, early summer, uh, as everyone was gearing up for the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, there was this, this, this hope and, and actually even an expectation that uh, the weapons that the Ukrainians had gotten, the training that they had received, uh, and, and the intelligence uh, support that was being provided, as well as very significant supplies of ammunition, uh, that that would be sufficient uh, for the Ukrainians to launch the counteroffensive and to break through in a couple of places, or at least uh, to find a way to threaten uh, uh, Russians' control of the land corridor between Crimea uh, and Russia proper. And that was the strategic objective. And I remember talking to people in the administration uh, saying that, you know, come October, uh, we expect that the uh, Ukrainians are going to be in a very strong position to perhaps start thinking about opening negotiations uh, on the basis of, uh, uh, of a position of strength. Uh, and clearly that was what the Ukrainians were expecting. And they were talking about we will be in Crimea in October. Well, it's now November. And uh, uh, the, the front line between the 1,000 kilometer front line between Russia and Ukraine has shifted a total of 500 square kilometers since January 1st. That's what's called a stalemate. Uh, and indeed, uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, head of the armed forces has described it as such. Now, it doesn't mean the fighting has stopped. The fighting is incredibly intense. The number of people 
uh, being killed and wounded it, it continues to be very, very significant, but the lines aren't moving. And so in Washington, there is an increasing uh, appreciation, I think, inside the administration that the hope and expectation uh, may have been too, uh, uh, too positive, too uh, forward-leaning, and that we are now in a position where the number one thing the Ukrainians need to do is to maintain the gains they have so far. Uh, and that this there's a shift in thinking in Washington to we need to make sure that the Ukrainians dig deep uh, and create the kind of defensive perimeter that the uh, Russians have been able to do uh, in order to make sure that the Russians, weak though they are, don't actually break through the Russian uh, the, the, the Ukrainian lines. And in order to do that, it is incredibly important. Uh, that the U.S. and its allies continue to provide the ammunition and the equipment, but particularly the ammunition, the missiles, the rockets, the shells uh, that will allow uh, uh, Ukraine to, to defend itself. And that's why this question of uh, funding is so critical. Everyone realizes that the U.S. is the crux, it's the leader, it, 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 without the U.S., Europe will not be able to fill the gap, even if they would want to, um, uh, which itself may be a question. And so we're, we're stuck on this question. Is the United States going to be prepared to provide uh, the, the financial means uh, to deliver uh, the kind of equipment and a kind of ammunition and, and, uh, and, and materiel that the, that the Ukrainians need to defend themselves, not just for an counteroffensive? Uh, and that's a big shift in mood. Yeah, it's a huge shift in mood. Um, and I think you'll hear even people who are very ardent supporters of Ukraine now talking about um, accepting the prospect that you that Russia may uh, occupy large swaths of Ukrainian territory for the foreseeable future. Um, and so I think, again, that's it's a significant shift. But I want to pick up on this point about U.S. funding because it's kind of you know, the big question that everyone is is watching very closely. And the question is whether or not the U.S. Congress will be, will pass another round of assistance. And you'll hear differing opinions that some say, well, no, it's not looking unlikely in large part because it's going to be difficult to get the bill to the floor. But if the bill gets to the floor, that there is enough Republican votes that can see it passed. But but I think the thing that's gloomy to me in my mind also is, though, th that even if this next round of assistance passes, that it very well could be the last one that we see for some time. So I want to get your sense of where things stand on this funding debate and, and your sense of whether or not the Congress will be able to pass another round of support. Well, I think first, just to set uh, where we are on uh, uh, in terms of uh public and congressional support. There is overwhelming public and overwhelming congressional support for continuing to provide Ukraine with the military assistance it needs. Ivo, will you give some of the data that you all received? Yeah, so I mean, we support? we at the council, the Chicago Council do, do polling and our most recent poll, which was done in September, um, uh, indicated that public support for continuing military support is at 63%. Uh, now compare that to November of 2022, it was at 65%. It's gone down 2% over a period of uh, almost a year, and that's within the margin of error. 
In fact, among Democrats, it's gone up. Among Republicans, uh, sorry, among independents, it's remained relatively stable at kind of two thirds. It's the problem is among Republicans. There is now a majority of Republicans who would like to stop providing aid to uh, uh, to uh, Ukrainians. And that's the first time, first opinion poll we've done, and we've done uh, a whole bunch uh, in which Republican uh, majority no longer supports providing aid. On Capitol Hill, there is overwhelming support among Republicans uh, in the Senate. Uh, and indeed, Mitch McConnell, who has uh, emerged uh, throughout the last uh, 20 plus month as one of the staunchest supporters uh, of Ukraine, has pushed very hard for an aid package that includes uh, aid to Ukraine, uh, aid to Israel, uh, aid to, uh, 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 to Taiwan, uh, and um, and of course, also uh, dealing with the issue of the border. And they're working very hard on the Senate to put together a package. The problem is on the House side, and it's on the House Republican side. Uh, and the House is, for you know, we all know, has not been uh, able to get anything done for the past few months. Uh, it didn't have a speaker, uh, wasn't able to do anything for about three months, uh, three weeks. Uh, it now does have a speaker. It was able to. Uh, pass a bill that kept the government open just last week, again, with large-scale Democratic support. And the only question is, at what point is a bill that, um, as you rightly said, at one point is a bill that includes Ukrainian funding going to come to the floor? The floor in the House is controlled by the Speaker. Uh, the Speaker is uh, uh, has not never voted in favor of Ukrainian aid. Um, but on the other hand, he uh, he's also never been supportive of uh, relying on democratic votes to keep the government open and he just did that um so i'm remain relatively optimistic that in the not too distant future between now and say mid-january when the the continuing resolution uh starts to run out uh, we will have a vote uh on, on ukrainian aid I, I don't think it's not going to happen uh what i worry about is not only is that the last vote and that depends in, in some ways how big is the package. Uh, it needs to be big enough to at least get us past the next election. Uh, so it becomes a, a, a non-political issue then. But will it contain all the elements uh, that the Biden administration pushed? We spend a lot of time thinking about military aid, yes. and that's critical. Exactly. Economic exactly. aid is equally. Do you have an understanding what the bill looks like, because I think we, as we were saying, I think both of our impressions is that the Biden administration seems optimistic that they can get something passed, perhaps because it's tied to border assistance or something else that Republicans can get behind. But I think you're, you're, the point that you just raised is, you know, about the size and the substance of the bill and whether or not it's enough to get through 2024 do you, I, I don't have a sense of actually what's in the bill, and I wonder if you have any 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 insight. So I don't think there's a bill yet, uh, and, and so it's hard to know what's in it. But I, I think the discussion among Republicans and Democrats in the Senate and the White House, which is really where I think now the, the focus is, although White House has continued to have conversations with um, with the House, but the focus is really on the Senate. Uh, the discussion there is that there's no question that the amount of uh, military aid will be at least as much as Biden had asked for. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's more. 
Remember that every time Biden put anything on the table, Congress uh, did more. The big debate is on economic aid. Uh, and in particular, the, what is it, 14.3 billion in direct budgetary support uh, that the administration has put on the table. Uh, this budgetary support has been absolutely vital uh, for uh, Ukraine to maintain its economy. And remember, a, a, even if it has a military, if its economy is not working, the country collapses too. Uh, and that, and, and Russia doesn't care how it collapses. And indeed, uh, it, it's targeting and will soon increase the targeting of its economic infrastructure precisely for that reason. There is an argument in the Senate, well, the Europeans should take care of that. And yes, in theory, the Europeans should provide the economic aid. But anybody who knows how the European Union works knows that that is not going to be forthcoming for a bit. The European Union has put a t on the on the table a uh, package of 50 billion euros over the next four years. That package is stuck uh, because of a variety of domestic and other reasons, including what's happening in Germany in the budget debate, which we don't have to get into. Um, but as far as I can tell, Treasury and other officials are saying, if this money is not part of the Ukrainian budget, the Ukrainian economy is going to uh, go under. And yeah. you're not going to be paying, able to go to the, paying uh, your fighters, your doctors, your trash collection. I mean, I think it's uh, I think exactly. it's so overlooked that you can have maintain the front line and everything crumbles behind it. And then that's it. I mean, it's really critically important. No, that's exactly right. So uh, and 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 there is a worry that the Senate not focused on this uh, will do what it needs to do on the military side, but not on the economic side. And you can guarantee that if it doesn't if it doesn't get into the Senate bill, it certainly won't get into the House bill. Uh, uh, and so it really is critical that it gets uh, that it gets in the in 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 the bill. And I think, the, you know, I think part of it is starting to make the argument why this is important. We can actually lose this war. Uh, we, the Ukrainians can lose this war uh, in a very, very real sense. If they can't defend themselves military and their economy is not able to sustain itself, it will collapse. And if it collapses, the Russians win. Uh, and that is what this is about. And, and that's what President Biden wrote in his op-ed in the Washington Post over the weekend. But I think it needs to become part of the argument. I think we've all been... Um, in some ways, uh, felt that things were getting so good and so positive over the last year or so since the, the resistance in Kiev and then the counteroffensive in August and in Kherson uh, and Kharkiv uh, that we thought this war was going to win. And indeed, the Washington debate is about whether to provide enough weapons for Ukraine to win. I don't think that's the debate. The debate is, are we going to do enough for Ukraine not to lose? Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, talk about gloomy, that's where we are. Uh, and, and we better be very serious about it. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, just, it equals what I've been hearing as well. The, the gloom there from Chicago is, I think, is felt around here. And I, I think allies are beginning to wake up to that too. A number of allied delegations have come through and are hearing this gloom and I and they've been saying, at least in Europe, it's not quite as gloomy, but they uh, they return back to their home base. And uh, and I think that we're starting to see a real turn of the of the tide there and discussions and governments about. So what do we do if this happens? What's the European response? How can we step up? What do we need to be doing now? That's beginning to be part of the conversation. 
But uh, Evo, let me ask you a question about the summit coming up. Um, you and I have been to many of them. My first one actually was the 50th anniversary in 1999. And I got to watch this town uh, become a big summit town. Uh, but as we, in the run-up to the summit, and as you as we know, that's the most important thing in a lot of ways is, is putting together what we're going to do in, in Washington, 75th anniversary. It's going to be a few days before the Republican National Convention as well. This town will be just consumed with the politics of it. Um, and so as we describe for us, in your view, what the run-up to the summit could look like um, in terms of preparations for um, what's going to be a very big political event, uh, and particularly when it comes to Ukraine membership in NATO, we saw what happened in Vilnius. It wasn't pretty. Uh, we know the administration does not want Ukraine to be on the agenda. That that's not for that's not for Washington. Uh, but there's a view out there that uh, you know it's not going to be easy to keep it in a box. So, tell us from your experience, what's the run up to the July summit look like? What's going to be happening at NATO and? Uh, how are they going to deal with this question about uh, Ukraine membership? Just from journalists who are going to ask the president, you know, hey, President Biden, you know, what about uh, membership in, in NATO for, for Ukraine? So uh, I think this is critical. And in fact, the discussion we've had up to this point makes it even more critical. Right. Uh, you know, as you know, I've long argued that this is not a war uh, uh, over territory. It's a war over who controls the future of Ukraine. Uh, and and uh, the only way Russia is defeated is if Ukraine can decide its own future in its own way and guarantee that whatever decision it makes, it can execute and, and, and uh, defy whatever the Russians want. And I believe the only way that's possible, and certainly the Ukrainians believe the only way that's possible, is that they are fully integrated into the West, right? integrated into the West as a member of the European Union and integrated into the West as a member of NATO. And the question has never been whether that's the right approach. Uh, and indeed, at Vilnius, um, uh, there was movement on that with regard to, to NATO. I, I don't read Vilnius in the same way as many people do. I think Vilnius was actually a, a very good step forward uh, on uh, bringing Ukraine into this larger path and uh, 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 becoming a member of NATO. It's not only said that they will become members of NATO, it also said that Ukraine's future is in NATO. Uh, uh, and of course, it eliminated some of the more laborious steps for Ukraine to become a member, including the need to, uh, to go through a membership action plan. Um, so now that we are faced with a stalemate, which I think we are, and we may not like to call it, but that's what it is. And we're re we're faced with the reality that Russian troops will continue to occupy Ukrainian territory, which, by the way, they have occupied since 2014. So it's not like it's new. Um, and, and it's not like if we were to go back to where the line was on February 24th, 2022, that all of a sudden we had reached nirvana. It wasn't nirvana then uh, that this war has been going on. But understanding that that the rest of of that territory is fully and completely integrated into the west and so i th and and i actually think the administration understands this uh and and yes you're right uh, jim that uh, particularly in the white house and in particularly in the oval office 
there is skepticism about when uh, Ukraine becomes a member of NATO, because bringing a member that is at war with contested borders into the alliance raises all kinds of prickly questions. Uh, and, for, and with EU accession too, we and we can come back to that. So it's yeah, a it's for yeah. both. It's for yeah, both. no, no, exactly. And and so so uh, I think there there remains deep skepticism. And this is not a skepticism that sometimes gets blamed on the National Security Advisor or the NSC. This is a skepticism from the president, uh, and 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 he is he is the most skeptical of all. Uh, and you know, uh, as as. Uh, as George Marshall said to Harry Truman over the question of whether to recognize Israel or not, thank you, Mr. President, for reminding me who's the person who was elected. Uh, he was elected. So uh, it, it, it is in that sense, uh, his, he, he's a pretty important voice in this, uh, in this issue. But they are uh, thinking, and I think they need to think, about how do, you, how do you start this process. And the Washington debate about invitations and path to membership and all this stuff, I think is completely wrong because it doesn't actually understand how you get there. Ask Sweden how easy it is to get into NATO right? Uh, when you're not at war and when the strategic case is as unambiguous as Sweden. So the idea that you have an invitation doesn't mean you know, and, and that somehow you solve that problem was wrong for Vilnius and it's wrong for Washington. The question is, what are you willing to do between now and then? Right. Between the and and I think this is a serious discussion that, of course, uh, was missed in, in Vilnius. The G7 debate on the long term, the, the G7 decision on the long term security commitments in terms of guaranteeing defense and other equipment. Uh, and capabilities for Ukraine to defend itself was a, a central part of starting to reassure uh, the Ukrainians between now and then. Uh, uh, I, the French are uh, actively engaged in an MOU, which they think they will sign soon. The U.S. is actively negotiating. They're actually thinking about, can we make this uh, perhaps more legally binding? Uh, and 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 find a way for the Senate to uh, endorse it uh, as a treaty, uh, and 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 can, and what kind of guarantees can you put in there? Is it right. just equipment? Can you say Is it more? Material? Yeah. Can you say more about that? Because, I mean, if if the Congress can't pass a bill to provide security assistance to Ukraine, how do we think that? How, I mean, I guess chart that out for me because it, you know, I feel especially gloomy because I agree with you that the prospect of moving closer to membership is, is, is not pragmatic. It's not practical. It's not happening in the near term. But I also had a sense that some of this discussion about long-term security guarantees had fallen away. And maybe that's because we've got the war in Israel and a lot of bandwidth and effort and attention is being directed in that direction. But I've kind of lost the thread on this discussion and had this maybe incorrect assumption that if we couldn't pass security assistance for Ukraine, that some sort of long-term commitment that would enable Ukraine to do the appropriate planning and everything that it does, that it needs to do to adequately defend itself, was also equally unrealistic, but maybe maybe that's not right. I, well, well no, I mean, I, it is. But if you accept that there won't be any more security assistance to Ukraine, we're also accepting that Russia is going to win this war. Yeah. 
And, and, and so I don't think that that's where uh, we ultimately will end up, which is why at its core, I remain an optimist about the continuing support, at least until the election. Don't ask me about post-2024 uh, 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 because that that's a whole uh, other kettle of fish. But, you know, uh, I think between now and then. And, and so um, uh, a commitment, by the way, a legally binding commitment doesn't require a House vote. It only requires 67 votes in the Senate if it's a treaty. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think part of that, and certainly the argument I'm making, uh, is it's not enough just to do material and intelligence and training support. I actually think it needs to open up the possibility of direct support and yes, not article five, uh, but there's a whole bunch of other article fives, uh, and kinds of commitments that are out there. And, you know, uh, I, I've, I've often po- pointed out uh, that our bilateral security commitment to the Japanese uh, uh, solves two issues. One, the issue of how far does it extend? The Japanese commitment does not extend to territories that Japan does not control, or it says administered, which includes the four uh, uh, islands up in the Northern Territories, which are have been occupied by the Soviet Union now by Russia since the end of World War II. And so uh, Article 5, the security commitment to Japan does not apply to that territory. And you can do the same with Ukraine, that Article 5 or whatever. This, this security guarantee does not apply to the, the parts of the country that it does not control. Um, secondly, if you look at what Article 5 says in, in, in not only with Japan, but with the Philippines and, and, uh, and, uh, and Korea and indeed the kind of agreements that we negotiated and CETO and, and the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, which is moribund, um, it says that an attack against the territory will, you know, is of interest. But the other thing uh, that it, said, it relates to what Article 5 actually promises, it says that an attack against the territory of Japan is of interest, of security interest of the United States, and that the U.S. will, quote, act to meet the common danger. Don't say how. Could be sanctions, uh, could be a UN resolution, uh, and it could be airplanes to bomb the bejesus out of the person who's attacking you. Uh, and, and so you would have to work out with the Ukrainians what it means. Uh, and, but that strategic ambiguity in your deterrent threat, which is, by the way, one of the things we've, we've had as a core in how to think about defending Taiwan, uh, is something that could apply for Ukraine in the interim as you move through the the steps of both eventual NATO and eventual EU membership uh, for Ukraine. Yeah, you've been such an important voice on this. And I know this is, I mean, these are ideas you've put out a a long time ago. Um, And, you know, even in our transatlantic forum on Russia, I mean, I think you had such a wonderful reception to those types of ideas that you put on the table. Um, But what has the reception been since then. Um, and I don't, you know, where do you think we are in this discussion? Do you think those ideas are gaining any traction? Is that, a, is that, does it, is it increasingly looking more viable that that's where we're going to end up or just, to, I'm really curious about how those ideas are being received and, and digested. I think there's a serious uh, a willingness to look at how to do this. Uh, and I think we, we missed, uh, you know, we all missed the opportunity in Vilnius to lay the foundation for it. As you remember, I before Vilnius, I said we should have had a group of experts that that looked at how you do this uh, and put it to, together. And instead, uh, 
we and the Ukrainians went for something that was always, never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, the argument that it needed an invitation was an argument that has no uh, political reality attached to it. It means nothing. Uh, and in fact, it enhances the vulnerability of the Ukrainians. What they really need is, is a pathway to NATO membership that includes uh, the steps that are necessary that can be implemented soon, if not immediately. And so I think the administration understands that. Uh, I think they are willing to uh, to take a serious look at it. What they don't want, uh, and and frankly, which I don't think other countries want either, is to be caught in a binding legal commitment that they're not always willing to fulfill. Uh, and part of that is on the security assurances uh, and the security support side. Will they always have the funding to be able to make it happen? You know, the Israel and remember the Israel in 2016, the deal that the Obama administration had with Israel also came with a guaranteed 30 billion plus was 35 billion dollar plus package uh, uh, that guaranteed the funding. And so you would have to do the same thing uh, if um, uh, if this was going to work out with with the Ukrainians and given the climate that we talked about at the beginning of the show, uh, that's hard. But um, I, I think there's 67 votes in the Senate for this. Uh, uh, you know, I think there's 67 votes for NATO membership for Ukraine. Uh, the problem is I don't think there are 31 uh, NATO, uh, NATO members for, uh, who are willing to do, move in that direction either uh, at the moment, uh, nor is the administration there. Uh, so that that's I, I think there is I think the administration is, uh, you know, is open to thinking about these things. And I think we all would do well uh, to think practically about how do we advance that kind of practical, real agenda, as opposed to calling for things that won't happen, and if they were to happen, change nothing. Yeah, yeah. no, that's right. Well, I, I have one more summit question for you, um, and this is to talk about the new section. Uh, our, our poor, wait, can our, we wait, Jim? Can we go there at the very end, maybe? Because I, I, I want to stick on this like Ukraine thing for one more second. I promise we'll ask about the section. Okay, okay, just this once, just yeah. this once. Okay, but but because it go, I it directly follows from what we're talking about in the sense of, um, this new reality is set in, and so people are thinking, well, what do we do now? Is it your sense that the White House, the Biden administration actually has a theory of the case and is thinking about how we might have to redefine victory in Ukraine? Do we, I mean, I, I know everyone asks this is how does this end? But I think the really, the really hard part is it, 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 it feels like we're in, that we're worse off now because from Moscow's perspective, they see the troubles in the U.S. Congress. They are waiting for the election of President Trump. Um, the Ukrainians are now exhausted and don't have any additional offensive capability for the time being. And so, you know, our the, the theory I had heard for so long from the Biden administration is we need to do what we need to do to put Ukraine in the best possible position on the battlefield so that they're in the best possible position in the negotiating table. I don't think that's where we are, and I don't know how we get back there. And so, I mean, I, I, I yeah, no, I, so how this I think ends I, question is still there, but I, I feel like we're almost worse off now than, than we were, you know, four months ago. Well, well, we're worse off uh, now than when we thought four months ago that we would be in a different 
that's right. That's uh, situation right. Than, than we are today. Uh, and, but so did everybody else, including the Russians, for that matter. Yeah. Uh, you know, frankly, I was never convinced by the argument that if, there, if they had uh, had a successful counteroffensive, that that would lead to a negotiation. I don't I don't think this war is going to end anytime soon. I don't think there's going to be a negotiation anytime soon. Number one, and, and and Andrea, you know this better than anybody else. Vladimir Putin is not going to negotiate anything until he knows what's happening in, in 2024 in the United States, because he hopes that Donald Trump's going to solve his problem. Uh, and so there is no way he will do anything other than declare victory uh, uh, with 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 real uh, uh, in between. Nor are, the, nor are the Ukrainians going to negotiate anything. They're, they're, they're not able to negotiate anything. So this idea that somehow, you know, you read this, I guess it was Richard Haas and Charlie Kupchin uh, in, in Foreign Affairs a couple of, a couple of days ago that uh, there's a stalemate, let's have a negotiation. Well, you know, just because there's a stalemate doesn't mean you get a negotiation. Ask the Syrians and the Israelis who've been, quote, in a stalemate since 1973, uh, how that peace negotiation over the Golan Heights is going. Um, you know, sometimes there is no negotiation uh, or there is a negotiation that doesn't end. I think you're much more likely to have a fluid frozen conflict if, if you can have, you know, something like that. Then the Russian forces are going to be uh, occupying major parts of Ukrainian territory for an extended period of time, just as they have in the last uh, 10 years. Uh, and, and the question, it seems to me, is what can you do work out with the Ukrainians that ensures that the rest of the territory that it controls and it administers can be reconstructed, revitalized, and is protected against Russian attack. Which takes us back to NATO membership and the EU. Which takes you back. And, and so I actually think that this idea, which has dominated for 20 years, right, or 20 months, that you either win the war or you negotiate a peace, it was never realistic. We were never, they were never going to win the war. Uh, and, and I disagree with those that say that if we only had given them more ATACMs, they would have won the war. I just disagree with that. Um, but, you know, history will make that judgment. But we were never going to negotiate, negotiate a peace. What we were going to do is to create a situation in which the overwhelmingly large part of Ukraine is part of the West, which then lays the foundation for solving the conflict in the long term. And that requires change in Russia. It requires all kinds of things that will happen over the long term. But, you know, the Baltic states were part of the Soviet Union for 50 years. And after 50 years, they became independent. And they're now members of the European Union and NATO. And at one day, Crimea and the Donbass will be part of the uh, NATO and the, and the EU. It just uh, is not likely to happen tomorrow or indeed next year or the year after that. I think that's right. Right and before, that Jim, we get to your last question. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 you've, you framed it perfectly. And so the focus, as you've rightly pointed out, does have to be on the long-term security guarantees. And, and we've also recognized the challenges that we have in Washington to getting there. So I want to not, again, I feel like really I'm just such a Debbie Downer asking about all of the barriers and obstacles. But I know, Evo, you had mentioned 
in a previous conversation, again, more polling that you all had done looking at the Republican Party and this more kind of isolationist undercurrent. And I was really struck by the polling figures that you gave. I think you had said, and you you can give the actual figures, it was the first time that more Republicans preferred the U.S. to do less internationally. Yeah. Something That's like right. That. I mean, so we've done this this question since 1974, and Gallup has done it since 1947, which is, do you think the United States should play an active role in world affairs, or do you think the United States should stay out of world affairs? In the last 50 years, uh, two to one, about, you know, mid-60s percent say active role, and about 30 percent say uh, uh, an active role. It's now down to, uh, don't quote me on it, I think it's into the high 50s been there before but the striking thing is that for the first time a majority of republicans 53 percent uh say that the united states should stay out of world affairs that's uh, such an important message and, and so you do you do have a a breakdown in the fundament for the first time in the fundamental american consensus about its role in the world uh, and, and this is this is the dominance of donald trump uh, in the party and and the America first uh, and isolationist America first and isolationist is really both um that this is not an activist foreign policy that these people want and that that Trump wants um uh, and, and that's that's a, a reality I think that's going to be uh uh one of the reasons why a lot of allies are looking at the United States and wondering whether, what they have relied on for 80 years um, is something they can continue to rely on or, or rely on. You know, as Jim Lindsay and I wrote uh, five years ago uh, the, 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 in a book called The Empty Throne, the throne was empty. Uh, and, and, and Biden brought it back and he brought American leadership back. Uh, but there is this question, was this the last breath? And it's not just Ukraine's future, it's a future of a lot of other things that, that are at stake here. Uh, and uh, but, you know, that's a that's a larger discussion, I think, within the confines of where we are for the next 24 months. Uh, sorry, next 12 months between now and the end of the election. I think uh, the administration is going to try to do as much as it can to ensure that Russia cannot and does not outlast Ukraine and the West uh, and, and cannot succeed. You, the, uh, last question, Jim, and then you can ask, and then I'm going to be quiet for the rest of the podcast and you can do all your, go ahead, two finger, go ahead. No, 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 no. I was going to say, I'm going to ask two questions now, not just one, okay, but two. You can, you can ask as many as we have time for. Last question oh, from Evo is, how do you think the crises in the Middle East, the Hamas attack has, I mean, I assume that, that those polling, those questions were asked before the Hamas attack on Israel. And do you think that having these multiple crises is making Americans even less inclined to participate on the global stage or feeling like the United States is overstretched and not able to do multiple things at, at multiple times? I mean, that's one thing we haven't talked about in the course of this conversation is how how this Middle East issue is, is affecting um, the U.S. capacity and calculus on Ukraine. I, what's your sense of that? So yeah, the poll was done before, so I uh, before uh, October seventh. So I don't I don't know uh, how it plays out in the public, but my 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 guess, and you know, given how polling has, has has evolved, is that every event in the world is seen through the lenses that are reflected in that opinion poll, and so I think it will just uh, lead 
those who believe that the United States is overstretched and should spend more time at home to say, well, see, proves it. We got another crisis. Let's forget it. We can't do all these things. Let's just, uh, you know, build a bigger uh, a bigger wall and and uh, and stay inside. And those who say, no, actually, the United States is the only country in the world that uh, that can uh, bring together the the international community and to start to addressing these kinds of things where we'll be reinforced in that point of view. Uh, and, you know, I mean, uh, it, it depends. There, there are those of us, I'm one of them, who think that Biden has had, in some ways, the best five weeks of his presidency. Um, and uh, there are others who say that it just demonstrates that it, it was the worst five, you know, how bad he is. And and that's not going to change. Uh, um, uh, so I, I don't think it just reinforces priorly held beliefs. I don't think it fundamentally changes the picture. The pod class floor is yours, Jim. Well, thank you. We've got 30 seconds left. And uh, so she's one run down the clock on me. But uh, no, uh, Evo, just uh, uh, on the polling, um, I know this was done before Gaza. But one thing that the Gaza uh, uh, crisis has shown is a big generational difference between uh, younger people and uh, and those of us who you know came of age in the 20th century and with all those crises. Uh, that there was a, uh, a bit of a surprise uh, on um, on the way the younger generation looks on assistance to Israel or Israel's role in the Middle East, et cetera. Um, in your polling, have you found other areas where there's a gen there's a potential generational divide? Are there other um, you know questions that were asked where there was a pretty big difference between how uh, the younger generations look at things versus all of us coming out of the last century? Uh, yeah, so there's always a generational divide. And there's been for decades and decades and decades. So there was a generational divide during the Vietnam War, right? Uh, uh, between younger and older uh, and older folks. What no, we seen, so so that's always there. Yeah. What you what we've seen up to this point is that as the younger generation gets older, uh, it, it it starts to reflect what its previous older generation thought as well. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a there's a there's a secular shift over time, but it, you know, uh, I think there's an op-ed in the Washington Post. I didn't read it, but it, the, the title said, when I was 33, I knew everything. And when I'm 69 now, and I know one important thing, uh, and, and that's true, how much I don't know, right, uh, in, in some way. So, you know, uh, people with strong opinions tend to be young um, because because that's that's how it how it works. The question that we are looking at and we're getting more and more data on it over time is, okay, but has there really been a secular shift? And if you look at our generation, which grew up during the Cold War when and, and, and understood some sort of fundamental uh, realities, and in my case, you know, our, our parents' generation grew up during, my, my parents were, were, uh, were kids during World War II. In, uh, uh, in, uh, in in Europe, and my mother is a survivor of the Holocaust. That has been how I think about it. If you look at this generation, that basically has seen for the last 30 years uh, incredible failure on the part of the United States. You know, two wars it's lost, a financial crisis, uh, uh, screwed up on COVID. And, you know, I mean, it's not, it, that's not the generation that you and I grew up with, right? Uh, let alone our parents. And so, how is that going to affect their view about how to deal with the issues writ large? And the Israel question is just the, you know, I remember the 1973 war. Uh, I remember the 1967 war. 
and 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 so this was this was real. This was existential. Uh, Israel was the weaker party, uh, and but that hasn't been the case the last thirty years. Uh, and, and so you know, I see it with my own kids. Uh, they look at the world in a different way because they're influenced by different things. And I do think that we're likely to see that reflecting in how uh, uh, how attitudes over time change, but they don't change that quickly. But th- but that's how I think about it. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. And uh, uh, I think your polling has been is so important. And I really appreciate you all doing that every year. This has been is really helpful. Last question, I think, and I, uh, Andrea, thank you for your patience for uh, letting me ask the last question. And uh, and this is one, Evo, that everyone's asking, uh, and that is the next sec, Jen. Uh, any any uh, any horses you want to put money on, or uh, any advice you want to give the alliance in terms of looking at that next sec, Jen? Any candidates that you are uh, interested in? Well, there was overwhelming support. Uh, last time around when they were trying to get somebody in, in head uh, of Vilnius right. for Mark Rutte, uh, the Dutch prime minister, um, who Biden asked, uh, um, uh, Johnson asked, I think it was Johnson still, was it Sunak already? I don't remember. Uh, anyway, the, the Brits were the Brits and the French and the Germans and the U.S. were all in favor of Rutte. And Rutte said no. Repeatedly, uh, yeah. um, he is now, since then, two things happened. Uh, the Dutch government fell, and there uh, and uh, uh, there's actually an election uh, this week, uh, and Mark Rutte is no longer uh, uh, the head of the party. Yeah, and secondly, he has now said publicly that he is interested in the job. Um, and, and so, yeah, do I know? I don't. Uh, uh, who's going to be? But you know, you have someone who has a lot of support uh, among the major powers, who is the most senior statesperson in Europe, still very young, uh, well-liked by a lot of people. Uh, So I think he's the front runner. Now, does that mean he's going to get the job? Probably. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's right. But I think there will be some disappointment in corners of the alliance that we're hoping a woman or someone from the so-called new allies uh, would, would get a shot. But I guess if, because uh, what you said is is very compelling. And if that comes to pass, I guess I'll have to wait till the next round. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there is, and it would be an interest. Uh, I know there is an interest in Washington, uh, uh, of course, in, in having a woman. Um, uh, there isn't anybody else who has emerged since Vilnius. Uh, that, I mean, Rutte is the only one, frankly, who has emerged. Pedro Sanchez could have emerged, but he's just been uh, uh, re-elected, or at least he's, he's, he's uh, uh, got another term as prime minister. Um, and, and there's no other woman who would be available. Uh, the only exception being uh, Ursula von der Leyen. Yeah. Uh, but she is likely to be the candidate of uh, of the European political party, uh, you know, and 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 uh, my view on that, on this, is a strongly held view. Is it is in the fundamental interest of the United States to have Ursula von der Leyen as the president of the European Commission. And isn't there Kajet Kallas, the Estonian prime minister, former prime minister? Yeah, but remember, she was also candidate last time, and and uh, and and, and uh, she didn't make it. Yeah. And I think she didn't make it because I don't think I don't think that the U.S. or Germany is prepared. 
to have a Baltic um, uh, Secretary General. Not, it's nothing about Collis, it's about that. So. Well, this was wonderful, Evo. Um, thank you so much for doing it um, and looking forward to the next time we can sit down. Um, hopefully we'll have some slightly more optimistic things to talk about. But although, I, I mean, yep, there's a different reality set in, but there there is a path forward. And I think you framed up that discussion in such a productive and constructive way. So hopefully that's the path that people are headed down and, and that it starts to gain some more, mo mo more momentum. So I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, great, great to chat. And uh, yes, I think, uh, you know, my uh, my former mayor, stealing from a former British prime minister, said, never let a crisis go to waste. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, that's Rahm Emanuel and Winston Churchill uh, uh, to just uh, put it on there. Uh, and I think, um, you know, there is the, the, the gloom that we're seeing does lead to an opportunity for a new strategy. And that new strategy is that's uncomfortable and we just have to work through it until there's a new kind of vision. Yeah. Yeah. And that vision is about the, what, what we all know is the answer. And the answer is the integration of Ukraine into the West. And that's, and so let's focus on that and figure out how to do it. And let's, uh, let's not do it with slogans, but do it in a real way. Right. There you go. We ended on we ended on a bright note. And I always appreciate that. So thanks, Evo. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.